Today on episode number 331 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Peter Felton and Leo Lambert are here to talk about their new book, Relationship-Rich Education, How Human Connections Drive Success in College. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Speaking of the art and science of teaching, today's guests certainly fit into that category. Joining me today are Peter Felton and Leo M. Lambert. Peter Felton is the executive director of the Center for Engaged Learning, associate provost and professor of history at Elon University. His books include the co-authored volumes, The Undergraduate Experience, Focusing Institutions on What Matters Most, Transforming Students, Fulfilling the Promise of Higher Education, Engaging Students as Partners in Teaching and Learning, Transformative Conversations, and the co-edited book, Intersectionality in Action. He has served as president of the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning and also of the POD Network. He is co-editor of the International Journal for Academic Development and a fellow of the John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education. Leo M. Lambert is a professor of education and president emeritus of Elon University, where he served as president from 1999 until 2018. During his tenure as president, Lambert led two 10-year strategic plans for the campus that propelled Elon to a place of national distinction. Today, Elon is recognized widely throughout the U.S. for excellence in undergraduate teaching and experiential learning, including its programs in study abroad, undergraduate research, civic engagement and community service, and interfaith cooperation. More than 100 buildings were added to Elon's campus during Lambert's presidency. Lambert is the co-author of The Undergraduate Experience, Focusing Institutions on What Matters Most, and a forthcoming book, which you'll be hearing about today, co-authored with Peter Felton, the other guest for today's episode, titled Relationship-Rich Education, How Human Connections Drive Success in College. Leo and Peter, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. We start out every show. In fact, since June of 2014, this is one thing that's never changed. We start about talking about the art and science of facilitating learning. And I know you have so much to share with us today about the science, as in something that's been tested, not just what we imagine anecdotally helps. But I want to start with the art with each of you. Could you tell me about a memory you have where you could so clearly see in your own life or in someone else's life how important relationships are in college? And let's start with Peter. Thanks, Bonnie. So this question takes me immediately back to my first year as an undergraduate. And I had a philosophy class in that fall semester, and it was great. 
Lots of things were good about it. It was a different course than I'd ever taken before. And the professor was wonderful. We used to go, it was a late afternoon class. And on Fridays, sometimes we'd go get pizza and she would buy us pizza if we'd keep talking about philosophy. So we would just hang out and talk about philosophy and all this. At the end of the semester, I wrote a paper. I could tell you about the paper, but I won't. And I thought it was a pretty good paper. And I go home for winter break. And a 10, week, 10 days, two weeks later, I get an envelope mailed to me, and it's my paper. And on the paper, Dr. Klug had written an A, and she wrote, and I remember this very vividly, this was the best paper in the class, but you could have written a better paper. Could you come talk to me in the spring about that? And you know, my head basically exploded because I thought the point of school was getting good grades. And the idea that the point was more than that, and that she saw something in me that i didn't need to recognize. I mean, it changed my whole college experience. Mm, incredible. Imagine that. And, and of course, would she ever have known that that difference that that effort was going to make? No. And I, you know, I also now as an old professor laugh, like, did she write that on every student's paper? <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it really, it was the right words at the right time. And then she was there in the spring and she was so happy when I walked into her office. Leo, what does this conjure up for you? Well, one of the most impressive interviews I had with a first-year student as we were conducting interviews for our book was at Nevada State College, right outside of Las Vegas, a Hispanic-serving institution, relatively new, less than 20 years old. And I met a first-year nursing student there who was in his second semester and who's talking to me about how he had been inspired to learn his first semester in undergraduate school by taking a class that he didn't want to take, Introduction to Geology. He's a nursing student. He, you know, this is a general education requirement. He has to take a science class outside of his major. And so he encounters this professor that not only interests him in geology, but she turns him on to learning. She makes this class come alive. She has them out in, in the Nevada desert, in, in the heat, doing active learning exercises. And, and he, he talks about the, the process of this class becoming a community. So oftentimes, when I listen to people talk about college to students, we use such transactional language to do that. We don't use relational language to talk about how to go to college. And we, we need to do that. Jose was one of these very fortunate students that gets it very early on in his undergraduate experience. And his relationship with, he, he thinks of himself as an intellectual very early on in his career because of an interaction with a professor that was truly inspiring. And it just makes you think about, we need to design the enterprise so that every student has an experience like Jose's during their first semester of college. I had an opportunity the other day to speak to one of the students who's in my class. It sounds a little strange that I wouldn't have made this connection, but so many of them have their cameras turned off for various reasons this semester, so I really hadn't made it yet. But she was sharing about having a conversation with one of our faculty members it was her and another group of students sharing about the difficulties they were facing with having enough money to have food to eat 
and to seeing sort of a disconnect with some of their other fellow students who were going to Disneyland and the same day going to Chick-fil-A and the same day I forgot what the last delectable (laughs) item was and they're thinking I don't have enough food to eat and they describe the pangs of hunger and the ways in which that affects them and what I love about this story and and some of the stories that you just told in terms of yes it was that one person so this professor built up enough of a relationship to have these four or five students join her and share in vulnerable ways. But she also then connected them. It wasn't like she thought she does she have to solve the hunger issue in all of higher education or even in our institution. But long story short, this one has such a happy ending because someone who works with me now launched our Living Well Community Resource Center. And so those same students got to take the needs and the pain and the grief that they had talk to someone about it. The person connected them. And and by the way, if she was listening to me now, the person who I work closely with would say there were like 3,200 people. I mean, it's just amazing this magnificent way that this, and you said web of relationships, you know, these um, ways in which if we take it from the transactional language, incredible change can happen in individuals' lives. And I know both of you know well that can just be multiplied and magnified. And it's just incredible to think about the power of what you're describing. Let's go now to the science. Talk about how you approached the research for the book and why did you decide on that particular approach? And let's begin with Peter. Yes. Um, So Bonnie, as, as you know, Leo and I and a few colleagues wrote a book a few years ago about the undergraduate experience. And one of the chapters in that book was titled Relationships Matter. And as we heard from people who'd read that book and gave talks about the book, people kept asking about that relationship chapter and kept sort of pushing on it. And so Leo and I had a number of conversations and the research is so clear. There's decades of research, literally decades, that demonstrates that relationships with faculty, with staff and with peers are the most powerful forces in almost all of the outcomes that students experience in higher ed, positively or negatively, and that those relationships are even more important for first-generation students and students who've been marginalized, students of color, for example, on many campuses, right? And so we thought we don't need to repeat that. The world doesn't need one more of those studies, but we did think, we were frustrated that not enough people who work in this world know that work and know how important that is. And so what we decided to do was to try to lift up stories of relationships. And so we conducted almost 400 interviews, about a little more than 200 with students and the rest with faculty, staff, from presidents to custodians at, I think it is 27 institutions around the country. As Leo was saying, large research universities like Florida International on one edge of the continent or the University of Washington on the other, um, Cal State Dominguez Hills, LaGuardia Community College, Haverford and Bryn Mawr Colleges. So sort of trying to get a wide range of American higher education, talking to faculty, staff and students to ask them how they experience relationships, what relationships enable in their education, what the barriers and constraints are in all this. And then we use those as the sort of spine of the book to unpack some of that research that comes from elsewhere too. Sometimes it just takes that one thing. Leo, you were sharing that earlier that 
they could just be that one conversation away from dropping out. Sometimes when you talk about it that way, we can begin to interpret it as if it is happenstance, as if it is accidental. And I think you're trying to say quite the opposite, (laughs) that it's actually an intentionality that becomes so crucial in being able to cultivate the kinds of relationships that will have the tremendous difference that can mean all the world to our students. Leo, would you reflect for us on sort of how it can feel and seem happenstance, but we don't want to leave it there. We want to bring this intentionality with us. Well, I think the first thing we have to do, Bonnie, is explain the rules of the road to our students. And I think they come to college with a set of ideas about what is most important. And we give them our own institutional views about what is most important. But oftentimes, neither of those sets of expectations includes the idea, the fundamental idea, that one of the most important things that's going to happen to you in college is that you are going to build a set of relationships, maybe seven, might be 10, might be a dozen, might be more, hopefully, that are going to be important to you for the rest of your life. Some of them will be long lasting. Some of them will be shorter, but still hugely impactful. And we need to tell students that they need to go into college with the mindset that building this constellation of mentors, building this web is in in very large measure their responsibility. And here's how you go about doing it. So I'm teaching an uh, an Elon 101 freshman seminar at Elon this year, and I have 13 first-year students, and we're really basing the whole class around this idea. Our class this past week was about how do you find mentors among your peers? So we've got to make this, first of all, very explicit with students and explain why it's so, so important that including that those that have significant mentoring relationship in college are not only going to do better in college, they're going to do better after college in all kinds of different ways. So relationships are high stakes for students both in college and after college. And we just have to make this much more explicit to students and help them understand that they need to think about college from very early on because Peter and I have a lot of evidence that shows that sometimes it's those relationships that students form in their first year that are most meaningful of all. So we can't wait until they're juniors to tell them the, you know, explain how all of this works. This has to be something that we begin with literally on, on day one, two, three, and so forth. And then the second piece of this is that we need to rethink our institutions, to value relationships much more highly. I don't think there are very many institutions out there that explicitly put mentoring and relationship building on the table when it comes to promotion and tenure time. But in fact, I think it has to become an institutional priority at all types of institutions, even research institutions. If we are going to be serious about great undergraduate education, we have to figure out ways to adjust the ways that we approach our work to place a higher premium on relationships. Peter, we looked at, you know, it's not just 
that one thing. It's not an accident <laughs> that these are intentional things that we can do. And Leo spoke a little bit even about explaining the, you know, how does this thing work? We actually just redesigned for this year our freshman seminar, and we are building it around something called cultural community wealth. And it's this idea because I, I mean, I am not, I was not a first generation student. So I came in, I mean, I, I still feel like I didn't have a clue, but I really, I mean, I at least understood, you know, calendars, schedules. I didn't have any sort of thing that I couldn't succeed in college. I didn't, I went in and thought if I, if I'm interested in something, I'll study it. I didn't care a lot about grades, but I just, I didn't doubt my own ability to be able to belong there and to acquire a college education. So this model of the community cultural wealth, which I'll post a link in the show notes to at least the best academic article that I have found that introduces it It helps them begin their college experience with a lens that says, look at all these assets, look at all this cultural wealth that you're bringing in. And Leo, one of them that they point out in this research is look at the relationships, look at, look at, you already brought this in, but to be able to name it. And then what I hear you saying I'm still not going to be able to do it unless I understand what do I do with this thing. Like I may have had the ability to really foster relationships. Another closely related one to me is the familial capital that gets brought in. And part of that is so much relationships and families. But like, I'm not going to know what to do with that in a college context that is so foreign to me unless someone helps me. So Peter, I'm going to get to a question now. <laughs> Any minute now. <laughs> um, Peter, what does this bring to mind for you? <laughs> well, I th- two things. One is one of the things we heard, especially from some colleagues involved in a program out of the City University of New York, the ASAP program, which works with low-income community college students. And, and they just keep emphasizing building on the community cultural wealth that so many of our students don't realize how capable they are, you know, and they know that they're, they're good at this thing. They're a good parent or they're, you know, they're good in their job, but they don't know how that contributes anything to what they could do in higher education. And so one of our tasks is to help our students, as you're saying, see the assets they bring with them, the capacities they bring with them and remind them of that. But Bonnie, you know, hearing this conversation, one of the things that's in my head is as a faculty member, I'm like, but wait, you know, I've got a lot of students. There's only one of me. I already have too much to do. So how on earth am I supposed to build relationships with all my students and have these deep, meaningful connections like we've been talking about? And what we say in the book is you can't. No one individual can do this, right? But there are things each of us can do in our own classrooms and just to call out two broad approaches. One is to recognize that peer relationships in many ways are more powerful than faculty student or staff student relationships. So how can everyone's classroom be a space where students are making meaningful educational connections with their peers. And that's in how we design our courses, but also how we talk about why I'm asking you to do this collaborative work, right? And then secondly, thinking about our own relationships with our students and recognizing, um, to quote a scholar who we interviewed for the book, Brad Johnson from the U.S. Naval Academy, that some of us are fortunate enough to have long-term mentors, the kinds of things that sometimes some of us get in graduate school. But many people benefit from having what Brad Johnson calls mentors of the moment. You know, that person who is there 
just at the right time. You may not have a lasting relationship, but they can change how you see yourself, how you see this discipline, how you see the world. So you mentioned the feeling as yourself, as a faculty member, just that challenge. It can be overwhelming, both because we feel like we don't have the time. We also can feel ill-equipped. I, I don't know what to do about, I have literally hungry students in my class that I mentioned from the earlier story. I think part of it too is the reluctance to know how do I incorporate more of these possibilities for students to build these relationships while I do have this pressure to measure things, you know, to measure learning and, and, and to be able to point back that devoting time and attention to fostering relationships within the classroom. And I, I think you're really the perfect people to speak into this because you are so research oriented. You're not writing books that aren't based on anything and maybe could give advice to a faculty member who would like to foster more of the peer relationships. But then how do I do that in a context where there is the, the pressure in terms of accrediting agencies, but also just within the organization that some people might not take that as valuable or, or take it very seriously. You know, one visit that comes to mind, Bonnie, is the time that we spent at Florida International University, where they went through a gargantuan effort to redesign all of their first year classes to employ a learning assistance model. And they had had... Uh, uh, you know, very large classes of, and they still do, of general chemistry with three or 400 students in them. And they noticed their D, F, W, I rates were around 40%, meaning that 40% of their students were earning Ds or Fs or withdrawing from the class or taking incompletes. And I think the faculty summoned their courage eventually to come to the conclusion that this isn't just because chemistry is hard. It's because students are not learning in our classrooms and we need to fundamentally redesign this experience. And the learning assistance model, of course, employs active learning pedagogy, a lot of small group work where expert upperclassmen and women who are specially trained can come in and facilitate small group learning and build those relationships in the classroom. So it's, I think, a matter of deciding what we've been doing hasn't been working. We need to try something different, shifting strategies. They're still teaching the same classes, but they're doing it in a radically different way. We have a great colleague there who said, you know, I used to be standing up there trying to talk my head off teaching chemistry. And I found out a much more effective way to help my students learn. So relationship-based pedagogy I would say, is where I would start. I think Peter and I are firmly convinced that of all the places on college campuses where relationships take hold, the classroom is still the most important place. You might think, no, it's the student union, it's the residence hall. It's not. The classroom is a powerful, powerful place and we know that, as I mentioned earlier, students as early as first semester are meeting people in those classrooms that are going to be important to them for the rest of their lives. So we have to make those first year, first semester classes great. 
They have to be inspiring. They have to draw students in. We have to put our best faculty and people who are committed to uh, relationship-based experiences for students because they're so important in keeping our students in college. So I want to add to what Leo said with just a really simple technique we've seen used over and over. And there's actually really powerful research that's come out of STEM education at Arizona State University about this approach, which is just attempting to use students' names. And you might say, well, I teach a class of four or 500 students. And there's this wonderful study out of Arizona State where in very large classes, students were assigned to make a name tent and to bring it to class every day. And the professor then, if, if the professor could see the student's name and could read it, could call them by name, but if they didn't, they could say, I can't quite see that, your name is whatever, right? And this research demonstrates that students actually did more homework in that class and worked harder and they felt their questions were more valued in that class simply because of name tense. And one of the side benefits of this is that the other students knew each other's names. As one of the students said in one of the studies, it's nice not to just say, hey, do you want to study together? But to say, hey, Bonnie, can we study together? So it can be relatively simple things like using students' names. Because what we found and what the research demonstrates is that students will work harder if they feel we know them and we value them. And they're not asking us to solve all their problems. They just want to be seen as humans. I did want to find out from either of you, though, have you thought about sort of how to guide faculty in terms of the relationship that to your class versus how much time spent? I don't, I don't know if that brings any thoughts to mind for you. Bonnie, one idea that comes to mind with regard to getting to know your students better is inspired by the Persistence Project at Oakton Community College which is a faculty-designed, faculty-led effort. It's pretty simple, and it's designed to, to increase retention at the school. But, and faculty commit to do several things, uh, one of which is to meet with every student in the class individually for 15 minutes within the first three weeks of class. It's time-consuming, but the faculty have, have determined that that is so fundamentally important. And one of our interviewees told a story about interviewing a Marine who came in very concerned that he was going to get typecast as a Marine. But through this conversation, his professor, who taught philosophy, became aware that in the Marines, he had read a great deal of philosophy. And he wanted to make sure she wasn't going to, she wasn't going to, typecast him as a jarhead. He said, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. And <laughs> so he ended up leaving that 15 minute interview with an honors contract for her class. There are other commitments they make. Again, learning the faculty, learning every student's name and returning some graded assignments early in the semester for students as well. Rather than icebreakers, the, the, the time that we can spend individually with students, even if it's just a few minutes, I think reaps enormous long-term long -term benefits. And it's simple. Oakton's goal was for every student to experience at least one class where a professor was involved with the persistence project and would have at least 
one of these conversations during their semester. Very powerful stuff. Mm. You know what I'm going to be Googling after today's episode, just as a side note, it sounds incredible. <laughs> it's Well, and the data they have from the Persistence Project is that it reads to students persisting in college and the students that benefit the most are men of color. So, I mean, it's it's a powerful rather simple intervention. But not all of us teach relatively small classes and can do this. So I want to give you an example of something that I think is so clever by a a psychology professor, Amanda Williamson, who teaches at the University of Nebraska. She teaches a 700 student fully online, before the pandemic fully online, intro to psychology course. And Amanda has set the whole course up around helping students understand the concept of efficacy in psychology. And I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to explain that very much. And I'll probably make mistakes here. But the key thing is, is what Manda says is she wants her students to have educationally purposeful relationships, right? And so she tells stories in writing and sometimes recording to all her students about how efficacy has affected her own education, right? And then she's created in their course management system, there's a sandbox area, which is for students where they're supposed to practice efficacy and help each other. So one thing Manda does is she has the students, she polls the students before the uh, test, 10 days, two weeks before the test, asking what is the target grade for the class on this test? Where do we want the class average to be on this test? And they poll. And she says they always set it relatively high, often, you know, low B, something like this. And she says, I believe you can do this if you support each other. And she said, this sandbox space in the course management system comes alive with some students are just posting memes that are encouraging, but some are posting study guides or links to videos or other resources. And then they celebrate as a class when they make it or they almost make it, right? And so... And she's not dictating, now turn to the student next to you and have this kind of conversation. She's creating a space and saying, students, do your thing. And I think that so much is so much more powerful than simple icebreaker exercises to create those educationally purposeful. And as Leo said long ago, student-driven relationships where they're bringing themselves into That is such a powerful example because I think the mistake would be for many people, perhaps myself included, (laughs) to overstructure it. To then, I I don't do this, but you know, reply to reply to three people. You know, to have that strong and compelling of a goal because it's a shared one. Yeah. And and she says, "This is your space." She says, "I'm going to keep an eye to make sure there's no harm happening." Like someone posts, you know, a link to a video that's that's misleading about this psychological concept or something like that. But she says, I don't comment. I don't encourage. I don't point you in directions. I encourage you to use that space and help each other because the goal is all of us to succeed in this class, not just one of us. Sometimes you you see the concerns from students where they're asked to do a group project. I, I teach in business and management. So they, you know, if they're going to write a business plan, they'd say this is not realistic, both because we're not actually starting this business, but also because of people who aren't contributing as much. You know, I, I had it where if, okay, if it's not realistic, if they weren't performing on your team, well, we'd fire them. Then I give the opportunity. I don't like to use that word fire, but if they're not producing the kinds of results that you've agreed upon, so you've got this team charter and you've agreed, what's your goal? 
How are you going to work together? What strengths are you bringing? And how will you address it if someone isn't performing to meet those goals in the ways that you've agreed on? And it really does help them, I think, be able to have conversations that are difficult and that kind of thing. But I will share that it is still, I mean, I get it. It's still far removed. You're not really starting a business here. And most of you aren't willing to go through the hard conversation to ask someone to no longer be part of your group because by the time you get to that, you got one week left for the project and you you know what I mean. This seems very relevant to the class context while also fostering the relationships. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And and Bonnie, what you're describing though is really good pedagogy, right? Of having some structure. So it's not just students work in groups, produce this thing. But having the students talk about, well, what's what do we want out of this group and how do we need to behave in this group and what are we going to do if we're not living up to it? That doesn't solve all this. But there's a wonderful paper I can send to you that observes student groups. And one of the conclusions they said is, it turns out student groups are like other human groups. Some people are jerks. Some people dominate. You know, and so, and and I find saying that to my students too, is like, this is something you're going to have to learn to manage throughout your life. And you can't just fire people willy-nilly. So you're going to have to figure out how to do this. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I just wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. I've been using SaneBox for quite a while and find it to be such an essential part of my own productivity, specifically in managing my email. It's extremely easy to set up, and as soon as you do it, you can set it up on an email address or multiple ones the way I have. It will go through the headers of your emails and very intelligently sort them. I hardly ever can think of a time when I've ever had to correct it. But if I did and it sorted it in a newsletters folder or in a later folder, I could easily retrain it by dragging it over to my inbox if I actually wanted that to show up in my inbox, for example. But it helps for our inbox to become for the messages we actually should be attending to during the prime focus time of our day and when we're attending to emails. And and that's not the greatest time, at least in my life, to be reading newsletters or to be looking at you know, anything tempting that came through that I may want to purchase, for example, those things all get tucked away for me. And those distractions or potential distractions are hidden so that I can be focused on the most important things I need to be communicating via email anytime I sit down to attend to it. So I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I want to also thank them for their amazing service and all of the time that they've saved me. If you head over to sanebox.com, slash T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, you can receive a free trial and also a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. Thanks once again to today's sponsor, SaneBox. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And we've talked a lot today about context. I've been obsessed with that topic well before the pandemic ever hit, but particularly as we start thinking through navigating digital spaces for connections, I just came across a wonderful tweet, which I'm going to have to recreate in audio form, but I'm also going to recommend you head on over to the episode notes so you can click on this and see this thing for yourself. Uh, Someone named Gretchen Goldman posted a photo of herself in the most interesting context. So it's it's one of those, uh, what was the haircut from the 
70s and 80s where it's business on the top and party on the bottom. Oh, what was a that? Mullet. A mullet. A yes. So it's the version of for Zoom where she's wearing a very professional, brightly colored, beautiful blazer on the top. And she's just a very vibrant person. And then <laughs> she's in a play, what appears to be a playroom. So there's just just toys everywhere in this room. And I think we we are fortunate in that we live in a larger home, so I can be talking to you now and be relatively assured that you're not going to necessarily get a pretty good sense of the context, but most people don't have that. <laughs> I've been seeing on Twitter some people talking about, okay, we're hitting this six-month mark now, and I'm living in 200 square feet, and there's five of us, and I go... <laughs> Oh, so um, I just love it. So, so she posts that and it goes viral. And then she follows it up. She says, this is going viral because of comic relief. And side note from Bonnie, we, we need that right now. I'm, I'm soaking up every bit of comedy I can get w- because it's just too horrendous without that. But she continues. But I want to be clear that parents are being put in an impossible situation now. And it will derail entire careers especially for moms, some thoughts. And then she says, hashtag mom journeys. And I do want to comment that when we say moms, of course, there are dads who are in just as awful as situations. And I just want to speak for her, even though she's not here and <laughs> I've never talked to her. But yes, of course, men are put in difficult. But I just think about the preponderance of evidence that we have. It came up in another Twitter dialogue about, oh, well, we could just put promotion and tenure on hold. And I'm talking to one of my colleagues, she's actually asking for that. And I'm thinking, I don't want our institution to give that to you because guess what, that will follow you for the rest of your career. So you you may get your, your wish to not have to be pursuing this, but that delays any future pay increases for however long and for the rest of her career. And again, I don't mean to make it just about a colleague or my institution, this is magnified across all of higher education, those historically marginalized populations that for any of us that might be feeling pain, just get compounded by it. So I offer you this afternoon or morning or whenever you're listening to this show, a little bit of humor because it really is a funny picture. But let's not let's also take it seriously for the circumstances which so many people are finding themselves in. And Leo, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Sure. I wanted to recommend a book. It's not a brand new book. It came out in 2013, but its author is Craig Stephen Wilder, and its name is Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. I think anybody in a position of leadership in American higher education, including members of boards of trustees and presidents and provosts, need to read this book and and consider its contents very seriously. I've been teaching this book for the last two years with Randy Williams, who's vice president for inclusive excellence at Elon University. He and I are co-teaching a graduate seminar called Foundations of Higher Education. And to understand how the structural barriers that that have been in place for so long on America's college campuses in the early days that only privileged elite upper-class white men, but in, in gradually began to admit women and people of color and, and so on and so forth. These barriers are still with us today in such 
powerful, powerful ways. I think the American public has so much work to do to adjust our mindset of who the American college student is today. I think we have in mind it's, you know, a character out of Animal House, you know, someone going to a toga party, somebody who is, you know, experiencing the best four years of their life, carefree, carefree time. That's that's not who the American college student is today. And these almost 40% of our students are going to community college. Many are working, many have families, many are responsible for older parents, many are first gen, people of color. And the system that we have built up over the last 300 years, I think doesn't, it's, it's not well equipped to, to serve well the students who on our, are on our campuses today. And I think it is so important to go back and examine the historical roots of this and to understand that we have some very pernicious problems in higher education that have made the, the playing field a very unlevel place. It still is. There are a lot of things that can help. Money helps. Financial aid for student helps. Mentoring helps. Relationships help. But I think we've all of us have to go back and take a good look at the, at the entire system and its history. Wilder's book has, has changed my mindset. Uh, he's a professor of history today at MIT. I'm thrilled that uh, in early November, he'll be joining my class via Skype to interact with our students. He's been very generous with his time to, to help us out. Ebony and Ivy will change your view of the American Academy. And I, I highly recommend it. So I'm last. And this is fun because we didn't plan this at all. But thinking about context and thinking about race and history, my recommendation is a book, too. It's a, a book by Danielle Allen, who's a professor at Harvard and, as far as I can tell, the smartest person on the planet. And this book, it's from 2004. It's called Talking to Strangers, Anxieties of Citizenship Since Brown versus Board of Education. And what, what Alan says in this book and shows in this book is that we in this country don't know how to talk across difference. We, white people don't know how to talk very well with black people. Black people don't know how to talk very well with white people. It's much more sophisticated than I'm making it sound. And, and she bronzes to say citizens don't know how to talk with citizens who they disagree with. And so in this book, in a way, it's like a philosopher's argument for what she calls political friendship. And she says, political friendship doesn't mean we have to recognize we have the same story, or we have the same values, or we have the same goals, but we do have a shared democracy. And we need to recognize that shared democracy as the foundation for everything we're doing. And so just with what everything that's been happening in the world, I've been thinking about this book and thinking about this book. And so I'd invite folks to take a look at it, because it's a really powerful call for stretching ourselves and reaching across difference to have meaningful conversations um, with people, because I don't think we're doing enough of that right now. I know I'm not. Peter and Leo, thank you for this book, Relationship, Rich Education, How Human Connections Drive Success in College. Thank you for the ways that you've both inspired us, but also given us an invitation 
to in more purposeful and practical ways play out our roles in this very important function in institutions. And like you said, I really love that our our recommendations all really were intertwined, even though I do try to not find out what someone's going to recommend. This was really fun. And I just enjoy getting to feel like I'm continuing the conversation with you, Peter and Leo. It's just been an honor to get to talk to you today. And I just appreciate you both so much coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thanks once again to Peter Felton and Leo Lambert for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed about your new book, Relationship Rich Education. And thanks to all of you for listening to Teaching in Higher Ed, whether it's your first episode you've ever heard or you've been listening since all the way back in June of 2014. Thanks so much for being a part of this community. Now more than ever, it just feels so important for us to be working in solidarity and serving our students well. So if you want to head over to the show notes for today's episode, you can see them at teachinginhighered.com slash 331. You also can sign up for the Teaching in Higher Ed update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.